Welcome to the Mindspace Podcast. I'm Joe Flanders. Thanks for tuning in. As I record this uh, here in Montreal, we're currently exiting the sixth wave of the COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, the local public health officials have basically lifted all or almost all the restrictions. And from what I'm seeing, people around me are in various stages of getting on with their lives and getting back to some form of normalcy. Nonetheless, we are left with the daunting challenge of having to deal with and work through the sequelae of the pandemic on our collective mental health. And so I've become curious recently about whether it's accurate to say that we've experienced some kind of collective trauma. And if that's true, what that means for our society. To explore these questions, I reached out to my friend David Trelevin. David is a trauma professional. He's a mindfulness teacher, an educator, a writer. He's the author of the book, Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness, Practices for Safe Healing. And he teaches the tools of trauma-sensitive mindfulness to professionals working with trauma survivors through workshops, online courses, and through the Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness podcast, on which I was a guest recently. Uh, trauma-sensitive mindfulness has been taught to veterans, prisoners, healthcare professionals, first responders, and many others. And more information on David's work can be found at davidtrelevin.com. Our conversation covered the following. The challenges in defining trauma. Is there really such a thing as COVID trauma? Why some people are more resilient in the face of difficult experiences than others? Neurobiological models of post-traumatic stress? Diagnosing post-traumatic stress? Approaches to treating post-traumatic stress? And the implications of collective trauma from COVID-19. So without any further delay, here is my conversation with David Trelevin. David Trelevin, welcome back to the Mindspace podcast. Thanks, Joe. That's yeah, right. Welcome back. This is yeah. It was how long ago? I mean, probably like seventy years ago. I think you were <laughs> the you were the set. I think the second ever episode on or third ever episode on the Mindspace podcast. Wow! And the first repeat. Oh, cool. Well, that's a compliment. I'm glad to, <laughs> glad to be back. That's great. It's um, it's an honor for us to have you. So thanks again for agreeing to do this. Yeah, happy um, to. How's how's the day? It's amazing. Um, I'm I, I'm back in Toronto, uh, meeting my niece for the first time. Actually, seeing my family for the first time since COVID. Wow. Uh, I was gonna a couple times gonna come back, and a couple reasons I didn't. So we just had this beautiful reunion yesterday, and uh, it was great. It was like no time had passed, and twenty years had passed. So. You know, I'm feeling, I feel really lucky to be alive and um, happy to have this talk with you. So life, life's good. That's just awesome. Actually, a really nice kind of intro into the topic of the day. Um, yeah. So you're in kind of like post-COVID vibe right now, right? Which, yeah, go ahead. No, it's funny, right? I think this is, maybe that's where we're diving in. It's like, well, where are we? And I'm, <laughs> I'm noticing there's a, the, for the, it's the most disparity I've had across colleagues and friends and family around an assessment of where we are. There's more diversity than I've ever had the whole pandemic. So it's just an interesting time. I'm like, I, I'm in a different place than my mom. And, and so, yeah, maybe we could, I don't know, where do you think we are, you know? Yeah. You know, um, at the risk of doing a rabbit hole before we even start the interview, um, I had Jamie wheel on the podcast. Oh, wow. You, cool. Yeah. Really, really cool guy. Yeah. And our podcast kind of started or the interview kind of started in kind of not a dissimilar place where he's like, you know, and his thing, you know, we were talking about the sort of the disintegration of meaning making institutions, right? So it's like, we don't even know what this pandemic is. Is it over? Is it, is it beginning? Like, is it safe? Is it dangerous? Are vaccines safe? It's like, like, it just depends on what social media echo chamber you're in or whatever. It's like reality is not as accessible and clear as it once was. Um, mm -hmm. And so that strikes me as part of it, but also the whole COVID experience has been just so confusing, right? Mm -hmm. that, that, it, that it comes and goes and then it's like super intense and then we get relief and then it's like, we did it, you know, we got past Omicron, but wait, you know, there's another one here. And so 
yeah, were you going to say something there? Well, uh, I've never lived through a period of time where there's been such massive collapse of yes. general institution or general trust in institutions. I mean, even even the New York Times, where I've been living down in the U.S., the Times I feel like is a major liberal outlet and very trusted. And even there with the Times, it's, it's things have gotten really rocky. And so it is confusing with the CDC and all the missteps about who to listen to. And yes, I've been thinking about that a lot around trauma, around well, who who are who holds authority around diagnosing trauma and PTSD. So yeah, it's it's fascinating with with Wheels' work and um, just seems like yeah. how we're we're coming into it. So actually, um, this might be one of the lenses through which we can look at the theme of the day, which is COVID trauma. Um, the meaning making, authority, medical expertise, all this kind of stuff. But let's 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 kind of put this in the parking lot and start with the basics. Mm-hmm. And just even this question, like, what would, would he even mean if COVID trauma was a real thing? What are your thoughts on that? I don't know if it's a question whether I think it's happened. I think there mm-hmm. is. Well, let's let's unpack that. What do you mean COVID trauma? Do you mean trauma related to COVID or do you mean specific kinds of trauma connected to COVID? Meaning what I've seen is that there's a number yes. of people who I've met who've experienced just straight up traumatic loss, um, yes. uh, being put in impossible situations, uh, a whole branch around the moral injury that a lot of healthcare workers have faced especially being placed in impossible circumstances of having to say no to families having last days or minutes with their loved ones. So it's just been, I think a lot of trauma has occurred already, but when you, when you just said that, I thought, Oh, maybe there would be a particular kind of trauma related to COVID that you want to focus on. I mean, I'm just happy to kind of get into it here and discuss all those possibilities. You know, COVID, you know, might refer to a specific you know, viral entity, but it means so many other things. And I guess there's a diversity of experiences that people have had. Um, and I don't know, you tell me, do we want to talk about what was your distinction there? Like traumatic experiences people have had in the pandemic era or, or, or just like some kind of collective trauma that we've all experienced living through this? Well, there's so much to say here. So <laughs> why don't you know, when I was a starting place, I'll define, I'll talk about how I'll define trauma here, please, which would be a response to um, actual or threatened death, serious injury or threat to physical integrity. And I think it's important to at least start here and see if we're on the same page yes. because trauma as it's become more of a popular yes. mainstream term has ended up be has become slightly diffuse. And I'd say the definition has been watered down and there's been some concept creep in the humanities more generally around trauma, which again, there's a double-edged sword here where it's great that people are talking about trauma and unhelpful in some ways to just generalize. So I'd like to talk about trauma as an input or a situation that is a threat to life and limb Mm -hmm. where our survival and our fundamental safety is on the line. Mm -hmm. And COVID cuts both ways here where definitely it has been a significant threat and it has been an actual material threat to family. I mean, people, families, communities, where people are, you know, literally dying or their well-being um, has been threatened. And then there's been a whole range of a more generalized threat that people could say has been traumatic, but I'd actually challenge that where I think it's actually just been more a challenge in adversity mm-hmm. and uh, where it got murky. And it was confusing about, is my life in danger here, even though I've been triple vaxxed, for example. So there's a whole other, there's a place where legit trauma has happened. And then I think there's been a massive period of adversity collectively that we're trying to sort out. Maybe we'll be talking about it here um, in the conversation. So, so helpful. In fact, I was going to ask you later, what, what do we even mean by trauma? So really, really, um, valuable kind of anchoring for us. Yeah. And let's keep that formal definition that you've shared with us. Maybe you can help me with this. So when I think of this notion of COVID trauma, it's like, just to throw out some examples, 
um, someone I know, like a single woman, especially in the more restricted periods where, you know, she couldn't go to restaurants, she couldn't go over drinks with friends. She was just home alone, like every day for a long time, working virtually and just not getting the nourishment. She's extroverted, not getting the kind of like nourishment she needed from the virtual connection and just getting really depressed. And, and just like not seeing an end in sight and kind of panicking around that. And then, oh, finally recovery, you know, spring hits and the cases drop and then she's out and like having a great time again and meeting people, blah, blah, blah. And then Omicron hits and it's just like huge re-triggering and falling back. Yeah. And, you know, I don't need to, I guess, go into, you know, lots of examples of that level of detail, but other people who are used to going to the gym, or, you know, going over drinks at the end of the day with colleagues and just their, their ways of coping with stress and day-to-day challenges just taken away from them. Mm-hmm. And so just feeling really down and out and confused and not getting how the hell to get out of it. Or parents who have a job and their kids don't have school. And so they've been at home with their partners and their two or three kids just chronically stressed because there are no boundaries and no recovery time. Um, and then that's just being completely exhausting and burning out, right? I can go on, but mm-hmm. people will use the word trauma. Th- these were traumatizing experiences. Mm-hmm. So concept creep, or are you actually allowing the word trauma there? This is where we're in that gray area. I think where we're collectively, we're both in conversation and we're working it out. So partly why I was excited to have this conversation with you is that it's a very live conversation in many different circles right now. And on some level, I actually think whether it was traumatic or not is a bit beside the point. I mean, yes, let's have that conversation. And the fact that those two people that you talked about had such significant suffering during that time and perhaps had depression or massive dysregulation. Mm -hmm. That's what's most important. And, and of course, I think there's a debate to have about, well, where do we draw the line around post-traumatic stress or PTSD and having the debate about who experiences trauma or whose pain is we're not going to account and call it trauma. But the thing that I'm hearing is people have been in massive pain and suffering and struggle. And and though, getting back to that definition, a threat to life and limb, like the most serious form of stress that we can experience, serious neglect, let's take the first example, significant uh, neglect as children can have hugely traumatic impacts on us because we feel like our safety and security is not actually being taken care of. Like being culled from the herd is pretty dangerous for us as mammals. Yes. So that's that example. I, I imagine whether we define it as trauma, there were traumatic impacts, that level of just sustained adversity that had impacts on the nervous system that would be hard to untangle from that of an acute trauma, say a car accident. Yes. So, you know, we're in the deep end here. And, but the thing that I'd want to flag is there will also have been people that have lived through this or families or communities yes. who actually got stronger here. And there was, so, so it's not that we can generalize as you wouldn't that COVID is, was traumatic. It was a strong input that impacted people in different ways. And for some, they will be traumatized for others. They grew stronger. So that's where I think we just need to be pretty case by case and, and person centered around it. What do you know about what differentiates the people or the families got stronger versus the people that ended up with PTSD? Yeah, this is a massive area of research that's worth unpacking. It's also not my wheelhouse, but from every piece of research I've done, it's about resilience factors. So we have both uh, material resources, like did someone have legit access to money, healthcare? You know, I've been living in the US where different from Canada, where there are just people that don't have insurance and there isn't much of a safety net. So I think there's a material piece around what resources people have. And then there's one psychological resilience of just measures. Like, are you someone who has a personality where you tend to, uh, you have grit, you're able to bounce back from difficulty, but then also importantly is interpersonal connection. So did, you know, did someone have 
a significant other, a friend, a family member who could look them in the eyes or even hear their voice on the phone and say, how I'm with you and I hear you. Cause so often trauma is the absence of connection with other, because people didn't show up in the way that we needed in a traumatic moment, or even in the aftermath that they didn't just sit with us or, or offer us the support that we needed. So there's so many different factors here. Yes. And in terms of what's going to help tip the scales where mm-hmm. someone experienced trauma and they got stronger and then someone experienced trauma and they developed post-traumatic stress and, and ongoing symptoms. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I, I, I could be wrong, but I'm, I think I'm picking up a slightly different kind of nuance in the underlying definition of trauma that, that you're speaking to now, which is maybe it's related to how resourced the person is when some event happens or chronic series of events happens. Maybe it's related to the intensity of the event, right? So does being chronically isolated, you know, for many months if that's severe enough and painful enough for that person's nervous system, it's not a threat to their life or limb, but can the intensity and the chronicity of something, you know, not life-threatening cross some thresholds that it becomes trauma and they develop post-traumatic stress. Mm -hmm. I, you know, it's funny to talk to you a couple of years later. Like I think it was, we both changed and, and just (laughs) hearing you say that I, I thought, wow, it's true. I have the further in that I've been, in the field of trauma or trauma sensitive training mm-hmm. for me around meditation teachers and the, and the further away that I get from academia um, and the, you know, the, I find myself less interested in whether yes. if we, if we count for hundred people and we talk about all of their stories, whether or not we're going to qualify their experience for being traumatic or not. Yeah. I, what I'm most interested in is what, in a very practical way are going to be the interventions that are going to support this person to have less pain and suffering in their life. Yeah. And there's a, of course, there's a whole conversation and we could have it around where's the line of PTSD or not where I get frustrated is I do feel like sometimes it, it just, we, the aperture widened so far yes. with concept creep that it actually just took away from people's lived experiences of really hard shit. And so I want to kind of shore up, help shore up the definitions while at the same time making room, as you just said, for people have been through hell and they're still in it, you know, <laughs> yeah, it yeah. has been really no joke. And I think we're going to be working with this for a decade to come. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually totally with you on that. I appreciate that uh, framing. Um, I guess the one thing that maybe the last thing on this is academic boundaries aside, is there something qualitatively different about how we help support, do therapy with, et cetera, someone who clearly, you know, has crossed into the threshold of like a traumatic experience with post-traumatic stress Mm -hmm. and someone who's just been to hell and back? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. or, or, Or are we just dealing with human experience human suffering and the same sort of like trans diagnostic basic uh, therapeutic supports and resources are what all of these people need i'm i'm glad you brought this up because at some point in trainings that i do people will sometimes say well it seems like it's all trauma this is for everyone and on some level the research and the clinical work that's been done especially in the last couple of decades around trauma i think as I think we talked about earlier, that does hold relevance for everyone learning about how the brain and body responds to stress and especially intense stress is really useful. And then there is to me this very important line where the interventions that we might have as a psychotherapist, that's where I was trained, psychotherapist, wouldn't necessarily uh, hold water with someone who's experiencing post-traumatic stress. Because at some point with trauma, not everyone's wounds will heal with time and people are getting caught because of some very deep-seated factory-loaded mechanisms in our minds and bodies that actually will keep someone stuck and the trauma disintegrated so i do think we need to at some point if someone especially if someone has a diagnosis of pt ptsd not just play fast and loose with trauma and depend on the research i mean 
I don't know how you feel about this. I'll, I'm curious how you, what you think. As someone who's trained around body-centered work, and I was in California, so it's a lot about, you know, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, when someone would come to me and say, you know, the most empirically validated treatment for PTSD is cognitive behavioral work or exposure therapy, which ran counter to so much of my training around trauma. And that's, so that's, as someone who also supports evidence-based work, it gets a little confusing about yes. what what we can look for. So I don't know what you think about that. But. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's funny. I just interviewed Anne Wagner. She's actually in Toronto. I don't know if you've heard of her, but she's doing a really, really cool study with MDMA, actually two studies with MDMA on people with PTSD. One of them uses cognitive therapy and the other one uses cognitive therapy, but both the individual suffering from PTSD and that person's partner both take MDMA. Oh, wow. And there's like this co-regulating theory, right? About helping the identified client or patient or whatever. Um, and so this, what to do about, you know, cognitive therapy or cognitive behavior therapy in this space. And I guess my comment to her was like, I'm actually not, not unlike what you said, I'm actually not that interested in these academic distinctions between what, you know, what this therapy does and says and what the other one does and says, and they're actually totally incompatible because that's not how it is on the ground when you're doing therapy. You do cognitive stuff, you go, you do somatic stuff and you do experiential stuff. And, mm. um, it's just not the reality on the ground. And I guess I, I also, I'm with you on the commitment to evidence-based practice, but um, sometimes I hold it lightly because maybe the CBT people were just a little better better organized than, let's say, the psychodynamic people to get their data out there. And maybe the somatic therapy people haven't put it together enough to get their evidence based out. And so I also believe in practice-based evidence, right? As, right. as as a guiding principle for myself. Right. Um, so that's, I guess that's what I think about that. I don't know how that resonates with you. This is, uh, it makes me think of polarization and humility, um, which two things I know that we think about. So I'm, I, I'm interested in the people or I'm drawn to the people these days who are able to, in the face of contradictory evidence change their mind who can change their mind these days i just feel like i'm often in conversations that i'm just dug in and or i'm with two people dug in and, and there's not a lot of room for just solid argument and people being changed through debate and so what yeah. would you do if you're a cbt practitioner who's been committed to cbt work for 30 years and mm -hmm. suddenly there are these studies coming out about mdma being very positive for healing around PTSD, is there a willingness to pivot? And mm -hmm. what's, I just notice there just seems to be so much polarization and stuckness right now that the system, and this gets to the window of tolerance, which might talk about where there's not a lot of flexibility collectively yes. to actually take in real time information <laughs> and, and move. So I'm with you. I'm all about the, what actually works and what's going to help people in this moment of the pandemic and it'll be different for everyone, but I'm, I am, yeah. I want to be as practical as possible. Yeah. And fundamentally, you know, if we're going to be truly, I think, dedicated to the evidence base, there's only marginal evidence for any of these approaches being substantially better than any of the others. Um, and so I agree with you that humility is really the starting point and fundamentally it's the common factors, the therapeutic relationship, which I just read probably accounts for 30% of all the healing taking place in any modality. Mm. Um, and also just if I'm the, co the cognitive therapist has been doing it for 30 years and have some, you know, powerful new study, maybe I'm going to be lousy at the theoretical approach that's described in that study and would just be a better therapist doing my, my cognitive therapy because it's what I know, it's what I'm confident is what I'm able to build alliance around. Right. And maybe that's still the better move, you know? Yeah. Anyway, I, yeah, so I'm with you on flexibility. You said something a minute ago that I'd like to go back to, what I think would be helpful for people, this notion of like the factory loaded settings that keep people's 
like stress or distress or suffering like locked down so that the, their wounds don't heal with time. Um, can you say a little bit more about that? What does that mean? Yeah. So fundamentally, trauma is an unintegrated experience or series of experiences that didn't get to process through one psychobiology. And in the most simple way, it was too much for us or for a group to integrate or tolerate. And so we end up paying the cost of that, I'd say, over time. Quick story, a friend of mine who's a colleague was back in San Francisco and saw a child and a caregiver crossing the street and a car almost ran them over. And so the caregiver had to pull this young person back. And and my friend was watching and said that in the, the kid started to cry, uh, understandably, you know, a really scary situation. And the parent or the caregiver got so triggered that they just said, stop, you need to stop crying. And then the kid uh, tightened this jaw. I don't know if it was he or she. And and then kind of you know gritted down to stay connected to the caregiver and then went on their way and we were talking about not to, this is not to shame the caregiver at all but how that is so often the response that we will face when we experience overwhelming stress is that it's hard for others to tolerate the level of emotion and activation that's happened and the difference would have been if if the caregiver had have actually moved to a safe place and said you know, that shaking and that crying that's happening is okay. You can let that happen. I'm here. And that takes a certain level of training, ground, and trust to be able to be with someone who's in such intense states of activation. Yeah. So that is why, I don't know if this is answering your question, but to, to move through trauma, it often means going back to what was too much. And often we need to be with someone, as you know, who is with us and saying, I'm here, you're safe. I got you. And it's okay to feel it now. Mm -hmm. And my experience with people when they've really moved through or integrated that trauma is that they're on the other side of a pretty big emotion or a pretty big discharge through the body is they say, oh, it's finally over. Mm -hmm. It's been trapped inside of me for a long time and now I'm integrating it in a different way. So we could, if you want to break down even more of the, the mechanisms of it, we can, but it's often just a trapped survival response that gets locked in the body, mind and body and gets stuck. And we need particular tools to move through it. And I think we're going to in the years ahead around COVID. Right. Okay. I do want to do a bit of a deeper dive on that, but first, what about trauma? So this new framing that trauma is a an experience that's too intense to be like processed through and integrated as opposed to what you said earlier which is it's a threat to our sense of safety or our life or something like that are these two definitions compatible so the definition around like you there's the difference here between talking about what trauma is of traumatic stress and then there's our the potential ongoing costs of it. So this definition of unintegrated, I'd say is around post-traumatic stress. Gotcha. So trauma, we can define trauma as, again, threat to life and limb. That's the most intense form of stress that we can experience. I should note, either directly or witnessing a trauma, learning that it happened to someone close to us, like your friend, like we can, we can be exposed to trauma in different ways. But then, as we've talked about, then there'll be a, a smaller percentage of people who in an ongoing way have these symptoms. That's the unintegrated piece. Because for some of us, we might, I mean, I've been exposed to trauma and was able to move through it with support. And then there, for other times it got stuck. And that's where I got curious in my own life around, well, what's happening there? And I think there's so many amazing writers who have spent their whole lives trying to figure out what is going on around these people that are having ongoing symptoms and impacts over time. Yeah. Yeah. Does that clarify it though? Super helpful. So let's come back to that, you know, very evocative story about the child that gets pulled out of the way of an oncoming car. That seems like a pretty good example of a threat to the child's life, their mm -hmm. safety. And that child's nervous system probably, you know, goes into some kind of like, you know, fight or flight kind of re reactivity. And then if I'm extrapolating a little bit, the mother is basically communicating through her reaction, like shut that emotion down. 
And the child's basically saying to themselves, if I want to stay connected to mom here, which feels really important right now because I'm kind of freaked out, I have to put that emotion away. I have to inhibit it in some way. That sounds to me like an example or a mechanism around how the things get stuck. I wonder if you can say more about it. It's like, why would that be in evolution that certain um, really intense experiences um, get trapped, right? And and even what the hell does that mean for something to get trapped in our nervous system? Like, mm-hmm. I know exactly what that uh, what that means experientially um, and sort of working with clients and stuff. But like, it's hard for me to build that into a sort of a, a model that's coherent with the rest of what I understand about the human body and evolution and stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, the metaphor that's worked for me that I learned from um, Babette Rothschild, who's a trauma writer, she wrote a book, uh, The Body Remembers. Yeah. All the best trauma books are like, the body keeps the score, the body bears all the body, you know? Uh, but she's great. She's awesome. And she, when she's training people around trauma and is trying to capture, as you're saying, what's the essence of it? Why does that stuckness happen? Like, what's the stuckness? She'll bring a bottle of soda um, up on stage and she'll start shaking it up. And she'll basically be talking about the stuckness as the cap. And, and in her metaphor is saying, you know, now what would happen if we just open this soda right now? And, and of course it would flood. It's too much for someone. So in Babette's work, it's a lot of bad and a lot of trauma work. It's about kind of cracking that soda top and allowing some of the pressurized gas, but let's, let's back that up even further. Cause I think it answers your question. The reason I think that metaphor works is that when it comes to trauma, like with that child, there is some kind of, there's an activation, I said factory loaded, of some kind of deep survival response, often referred to as fight flight. Mm-hmm. So the sympathetic nervous system and the autonomic nervous system just hits the, we hit the accelerator, we have the survival response, we don't have to think about it, it just happens automatically, flood of adrenaline, pupils dilate to try to protect us. And then that's the moment that I think you're pointing to that gets very interesting is why then, why the cap? There's lots of stories about different mammals who are able to shake and discharge that activation. You know, a classic example is the deer who shakes it off, you know, gets really frozen and then shakes it off, moves on like nothing happened. But what's happening for humans? You gave the example around attachment, I'd say. Yes. I'm faced with the choice of either being disconnected from my caregiver, which is fundamentally threatening. So let me basically cap that energy through locking my jaw so I can stay connected. And then in other situations, there's a legitimate freeze. The para, there's intense parasympathetic arousal, sometimes known as tonic immobility, which will come and cap or trap that activation of fight flight in the nervous system that can't discharge over time. So it has deep evolutionary roots about why we had that freeze. For example, playing dead like the possum, we inherited that. If we are story if you like if you're dragged away if you're a gazelle you're dragged to a cave you might freeze the predator thinks that you you're dead and won't actually attack you there's many different inherited reasons that we have that but it can create tremendous amounts of suffering go in an ongoing way for people because we can't uncap that freeze and it gets yeah. really frustrating yeah that's super interesting so i'm kind of drawn to this distinction between um, someone who really is in a post-traumatic stress syndrome. They've had mm. a threat to their life. Um, it's been really intense for the nervous system. It's It gets stuck there and they need a certain kind of support to get through that versus someone else who just had a really, I think you said like it's just been to hell and back, uh, had a really, really stressful period of like high adversity, is feeling burnt out. Um, and maybe that person needs something else. How do you, how do you, how would you advise people to sort of understand where they are? Such a great question. Well, I'd, uh, I'd suggest three different areas that people could look at to assess whether the trauma has been sticky or whether what they've lived through is creating more problems and whether it needs addressing. Uh, and these are three main, you could say buckets or diagnostic areas around post-traumatic stress. So, the three are uh, intrusion, avoidance, and dysregulation. So mm-hmm. really quick, if you notice yourself 
having intrusive thoughts, intrusive memories, or sensations that at any point you're having flashbacks to the traumatic experience, that might be one flag that you're experiencing post-traumatic stress. Avoidance, similarly, if you find yourself actively avoiding external reminders of the trauma, like I don't want to go talk to that person, or I don't want to go to that part of town, that's a sign. Or internal reminders, like I can't feel my chest, it's too much for me to feel, I'm going to dissociate from it. Or third, with dysregulation, if you find yourself just the accelerator and the brake are both slammed to the ground, you're feeling totally spun out, those are all signs that there might be some form of psychological trauma. Now, having said that, I, th- I think many people are dysregulated on yes. normally just as people. I mean, parents just trying to get through the first year or two of having a baby. I mean, there's lots of reasons that any of those things could be happening and it doesn't mean that someone's traumatized. Mm-hmm. And that's the domain that we're in is that there are symptoms that you can ground this in and saying, let me get curious about whether I'm actually stuck in something that I need some professional help to actually process through. Does that, does that answer that it's a question or? So, yeah. So what I'm getting is there are a few indicators but they're not definitive kind of diagnostic criteria, right? And I can think of clients who have two or three of those and, you know, maybe they're just parents or something, or, right. or maybe there's, maybe there is a trauma in their history that, that we don't know about. Um, right. So it actually requires kind of ongoing investigation. Yeah. And that's totally, and that's the spectrum I'd say of trauma where you'll have people who have symptoms of post-traumatic stress who don't necessarily qualify for a diagnosis of PTSD, but they could still benefit from seeing a trauma practitioner or even just reading a book on trauma. That's one thing I keep learning and why I think trauma is so popular is that the the fruits of all the work that's been done around trauma has huge implications for all of us. And I think it's just useful information and practices to have. So I think that's why we're talking about trauma. And if you're a coach who's working with someone and they're experiencing all those things, so it seems like they're experiencing PTSD, you don't just double down and say, well, I can work with it. You know, I think there are reasons that we send people to to trauma professionals and have them get support. So is the suggestion there, and I'm obviously not going to hold you to like medical advice or anything here. I know you live in the U S and (laughs) don't want to be sued and yeah. Yeah. But, um, if uh, if someone is sort of listening to this and saying, yeah, you know what, I think what happened to me in you know April 2020 mm-hmm. was pretty difficult and seems to you know check the boxes, and what I've been feeling since then kind of checks the boxes. What are what would you recommend to this person? Is this like go find a therapist who? you know, has in their profile experience and expertise in working with trauma? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd say two things. One is that, that if someone listening is having that, um, assessment, self-assessment, that the first move is just, just to turn and face it. As you're saying, I think it's a massive, a massive move to make. It's a very brave and courageous one to just kind of put up our hand to others or even to ourselves and say, wow, I'm not okay. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I've come through this and I actually need some support here. And then second, I think that support can look a bunch of different ways. So that might be having just a conversation with someone you trust. And just to say, can I get your take here? Here's here's my experience and here's what's happening. I'm having these nightmares or I'm having this happen. And just to start sharing it with people outside of us. There's a whole, for people interested, um, Judith Herman wrote a book called Trauma and Recovery a number of years ago now, where she talks about the ways that trauma will often be driven underground. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, there's a real uh, a spell of silence that gets cast around trauma, whether our own shame or just all these reasons that we don't want to talk about it. So I think that first move, just to actually say we might need some help, is big. And then, yes, to your point, I think if you have the means to actually reach out to someone who has some training around mental health, again, just to get out of our own echo chamber mm-hmm. uh, is huge. And I think we're going to need a lot of support these, these coming years. Actually, yes. there was something I wanted to bounce off you uh, as it's just come up in this conversation that, that it's, this is new for me. So I'm on my own edge here, but we could be here together. 
Mm-hmm. One of the things that I've learned about trauma in my over the years, both from my own experience of trauma, but working with others too, is that it's it's the it's PTS or post-traumatic stress can be the impact of two different impulses happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. So for example, the impulse to run and the impulse to freeze. They're both happening. They're both legitimate survival strategies. And that com- combination of the two creates that charge. And you could say that stuckness. And I wanted to link it here to what's happened to a lot of healthcare workers or even family members. Yes. Yeah. Where I heard stories of people saying, I was on one impulse was to hold the line around safety in hospitals, around who could come in and out of a ward, for example. And then there's an equal impulse to, of course, let a family member come and 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 be with uh, someone a loved one or a family member. And so it creates these impossible situations. And that's, so that's sometimes I think about trauma as us living through impossibility and then the costs of that. So I just want to put that out there and see if you have any, I don't know, does that resonate? Do you think that holds water? I mean, I think it's beautiful. I, I defer to you in terms of how, how well it sort of coheres with the rest of the literature. But even if we take the example of that child in the sort of like near miss on the car accident, it's like my body really needs to shake this off and I can't do that. Right. The child is, is living an impossibility there. Right. Right. And, and, and so the choice is made, but there's downstream costs. Right. Of I, the, yeah. Yeah. It also fits with the, the notion of that something is difficult to integrate or even in the moment uh, of the trauma is overwhelming because you can't run and freeze at the same time. Right. And so it just creates this kind of like shutdown kind of thing. And then shame. And then we have a whole, oh gosh. I mean, I think it happens a lot around interpersonal violence, but it can happen in so many different traumatic contexts where someone says, I should have fill in the blank. I should have run. I should have fought. And the freeze that happened often for a number of people is, it is and was the most intelligent thing to do to preserve life and safety. And yet we have these overlays of shame that often have to be untangled and worked with in very particular ways. So again, this is where trauma has these many layers that we want to be working with someone who knows how to parse out and even recognize like, okay, here's some shame we need to work with right now. It's not easy. Trauma. I used to think of it just like a negative emotion, like the most intense negative emotion. And the more I got into it, the more I realized, whoa, this is, this is very nuanced. And so it's not just, (laughs) there's many layers to it. And I think we need to support the people. Yeah. You know, not, not to make things even more complicated, but this thing about, to like stop and acknowledge that we're stuck or that we're suffering and turning toward what's happening and reaching out to someone and talking about it. Like I'm, I just, I actually can't think of a single human problem where that isn't the recipe to overcome it. Mm. And, you know, through the pandemic, I, I was uh, contacted a few times by various radio stations and it's like, okay, Dr. Joe, you know, what, you know, let's talk about, um, you know, the Delta variant and what the psychological toll signal on people. And we have a little, you know, radio interview that lasts 45 seconds and I'm supposed to like address, you know, like what, what people smart. should do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and like the answer I sort of landed on was like, if you feel you're not able to kind of bounce back, so you're down, you're isolated. If you feel your mood doesn't bounce back the way it normally would and you feel stuck, that would be my, that would be the signal that maybe you should reach out for help. Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, you know, I, I come from a mindfulness and third wave CBT background and this whole notion of experiential avoidance is central to um, what drives people's suffering. And mm-hmm. so, I don't know, I guess I'll challenge you. There, that doesn't sound like specific to PTSD. That sounds like what people need to do no matter what's causing their suffering. I agree with that. And I, I was just thinking when you said, like, is there anything that wouldn't benefit? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. you know what came up was climate. And in some ways the pandemic, but there is, how would you, what do you think about 
the when we are turning and facing something that actually doesn't have the mm. possibility of resolution or seems to be i mean with climate the further down a rabbit hole i went the more it seemed like we've crossed these bright lines and so now it's a matter of adaptation and but it requires i found if i was going to do a real turn and face to certain issues that seem beyond my control it has me be with hopelessness um fear of complete annihilation a lot of even terror and that it requires a lot of bandwidth so there are times where i don't actively turn and face it i'm just actually just trying to bounce this back to you like is there any places where it's not going to support health and transformation i don't know if that's one but yeah it's it's interesting in that case kind of turning away is a is a an act of regulation right to like keep yourself in in the window of tolerance Ooh, Uh, this is good but you would need to know that there is a regulation challenge in the first place. Yes. Right. Yes. This is great. So, so that actually sums up all the work I've done. You just nailed it. I had <laughs> never heard it said actually that clearly is that, and I think that is um, a real paradigm shift for a lot of people working with trauma. More is not always better when it comes to attention, you know? And so that's, I think he just nailed it. There are times where we might turn away in service of ultimately yes. supporting and regulating ourselves. But you, as you said, there's also needs to be an awareness of the yes. larger picture in the first place. But you just captured like attention matters and we need to be very selective about it. Well, you know, I think that I probably learned this vocabulary from you, but maybe I can just ask you to describe it. This notion of like pendulation and oh, there's another term that I find really useful, like um, titration. Titration, exactly. Um, I think these are great tools for people to know. Can you describe those? Yes. If this doesn't come from me, but um, Peter Levine, <laughs> no, no, just to, just to be honest, yeah, you know, yeah, it comes yeah. from somatic experiencing, which is a really popular psychotherapeutic approach to to trauma healing. And I don't, you know, I don't receive any money through that. I just trained in them a long time ago. And the core principle, this actually gets right back to the soda bottle or the pop bottle, because now I'm back in Canada. So, <laughs> um, so. Imagine that bottle of carbonated water being shaken up and you could think of that as a traumatized system, that there's a tremendous amount of sympathetic activation, fight flight in the, in the container. So the accelerator is slammed to the ground, but there's also tonic immobility. So it's capped. And that, if you imagine the feeling of the accelerator and the brake slam down, that's often what trauma can feel like or post-traumatic stress. It's really painful, uncomfortable, dysregulating. So the, the, the pendulation titration in this work around trauma, the idea is you're going to pendulate your attention. So basically go back and forth between areas of where you feel more trauma and areas where you feel more resourced. And in doing so, you're, you're doing what's known as titrating, which is actually, um, this is an old concept in chemistry where you're opening the soda bottle but only to the degree that a little bit of the carbonation is released, the gas, and then you're turning it back. You, if you opened it all at once, that's not titration. It'll cause an explosion. Someone gets flooded. It's too much. And we all know this, I think, intuitively that we can take only so much until we, we're, we need to like take a break because actually our systems can't tolerate it all at once. So that is the essence of a lot of trauma work is to pendulate, go back and forth, in order to titrate and not have it over, not have trauma overwhelm us. So yes, if that's, those are those two terms. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I wonder if you'd agree with this statement that, um, at least this might be just one among many qualities, but this is the quality or the, the expertise of a trauma therapist that might be sensitive to the pace and to not go at it full speed right away because one has to work very carefully with that limit. And if you went to a therapist that doesn't have that training, they might not know how to work with that. Is that, is that a fair statement? That is the essence to me of trauma training. That, That is why one would train is to know how to work with a combustible process. It's because more is not going to be better 
when it comes to working with trauma. Let me give you an example of that. So I was trained as a somatic therapist where the main question I had was, where do you feel that in your body? It's like all I had. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was totally stuck. I was like, well, where do you feel that? And if you just keep driving someone towards intensity, yes, to your point, yes. that actually can be too much for them. Now that can be confusing because when you're working in any kind of mental health work, I think when you see emotion, you think you're doing a good job. I did. Yes. Someone's crying. I'm like, I must be doing something right. And then I'm trying to amplify it because I think, well, go deeper. That'll be great. And sometimes that's true. But when it comes to trauma, right to your point, it's not, it, it's that you need to have a more nuanced approach and you're learning to track someone's mind and body in a, in a really nuanced moment to moment way. Well, too much. We're going to back off here. Let's, let's focus attention externally. That knowing that comes with time and it's not to make it a big mysterious thing, but I just think just to say it's, it's not, it's not as straightforward as it might seem. So be respectful of that energy. Yeah. And if I can just um, point to your book and the work that you're doing with trauma sensitive mindfulness, there's an equal and opposite um, kind of risk or, you know, mistake there that a therapist can make where it's like, oh, it's just sensations in your body. Just let it go. Right. That, yeah. that, that, that is, can be unhelpful for someone experienced trauma as well, where you have to really careful about how you engage with those explosive experiences and, and how not to. And, and to you, to that point, if you go too far in the direction of, of just, well, you know, that might be too much. Let's just steer clear of that. Yes. Or like, that's not you, but let's just say this example of like, well, Joe, you know, that actually might be too much for you. You've had a big year, I know, or two years. Let's just focus on what has you feeling good today. Right. That runs the risk of actually never bringing people face to face with that, which is causing so much trouble in their lives. And it's what I want to talk to you about in this conversation is, I think there can be a, an overcorrection when we're talking about trauma to, well, we don't want people to get uncomfortable or it's too much. Yes. And let's, let's just be reminded that we just, well, I want to be careful speaking collectively. Yes. There, people are strong and people, I have been so blown away this pandemic, watching people survive, even thrive in terrible situations and their adapt adaptability, their strength, their resilience. And I don't, not to romanticize it, but just, I don't want to approach them and be like, wow, you've lived through so much trauma. You must be so hurt. I really want to pivot actually towards, wow, amazing that you're here. What took care of you? And let's talk about what you need right now. And so I'm just, I'm finding it's this balance between orienting to people's trauma versus orienting to their resilience and, and the importance of that. Yes. Oh man. Um, big choice point for me here, where to go next. <laughs> um, I do want to come back to this collective thing. You know, we kind of started there. I'd like to kind of, I'd like to come back to it for sure. And the fact that we in, at some levels we've gone, we've all gone through this together, right? The pandemic. And so there's been this, uh, kind of collective experience. And yet, uh, unlike some, you know, collective disasters or, or things like that, we're actually in many ways prevented from coming together, at least physically. So this is really difficult conditions. And so what would it mean for us to like process what happened collectively and recover co co collectively again in the context of our sort of fabric of communication and meaning making really being disruptive at, you know, in parallel at the same time. Um, and I also really am curious about this fragility piece. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll come back to that. Yeah. So yeah, maybe your thoughts there on like the collective nature of it and how are we doing and how are we going to get back to some kind, back to some kind of resilience or strength together? I notice it's interesting being back North over the border here mm -hmm. where there just seems naturally to be more a sense of social cohesion, not at all to romanticize Canada, but I think just <laughs> given universal healthcare, there's more, it's, it sounds cheesy, but there's an energy or there's an ethic of, 
I'd say liberalism of just that we're going to measure our success collectively based on how people are doing who have the least access to resources. Like literally, how are they doing on the streets? And where I'm, you know, I've been living in the U.S. the last 15 years, it's just so deeply much more individualistic. And so it gets to this, what seems like a core problem here about how do we talk about this collectively when there has just been so much so much, so many disparate experiences around the pandemic. So I was just reading that black people in the U.S. has just been studied are receiving way different COVID care and assessments. I mean, there's just a whole yes. rabbit hole we could go down. And I think this is the paradox of identity where trauma in some ways is universal. We all have these bodies and minds and nervous systems where we're actually impacted in very similar ways. We can, we can talk about fight, flight, freeze as quite a universal characteristic. And then we have that added layer of complexity around social identity that certain people, because of who they are and, and their groups that they're a part of, will look actually experience and be exposed to trauma in different ways. First Nations folks here in, in Canada. So I think it's a both, I think it has to be a both and. And that is hard because under stress, it becomes more difficult to be with contradiction and complexity we tend to actually, in a neurochemical way, I think, be forced into binaries and black-white thinking. So I don't know, Joe. I, I'm curious what you think because I we need a ban- we need some serious bandwidth to come through this collectively, and I do not see us having a lot of bandwidth right now. What do you think, or what would you add? Yeah, I um, I think it's above my pay grade to answer that question. <laughs> to be honest, uh, that's what I brought you here for. But um. You know, what you said earlier resonates, which is like, I think we're going to be grappling with this for a long time. And I think one of my sort of like entry points into this conversation is like, I'm the director of a clinic that has like a waiting list. And, you know, every time one of our care coordinators answers an email, it takes like 45 seconds to answer an email, three more emails come in. Mm. Or she takes, you know, arrives in the morning and there's 15 voicemails and she like calls the person back, doesn't get through obviously. And then three more voicemails came in. We're basically, it's like, it's like a burnout factory, our clinic, because there's more demand than we can handle. And like 90% of the calls, like, I'm really sorry, we can't help you. We're full. Right. And it's like, what are we going to do about that? Mm-hmm. It's it's like totally overwhelming. And then, you know, do we have the bandwidth, the capacity in our communities to work through these things? Um, I guess it kind of depends on the community. I, I, I do I do have a sense of like in some of the communities I circulate in that, you know, speaking of resilience, that there's been a tremendous upswelling of compassion and people coming together. Mm-hmm. You know, it's unbelievably inspiring. It's like the the, the ingredients of resilience. So I don't know. I, um, I guess, you know, to, to link it back to an earlier part of the conversation, if it's collective trauma, are there certain practices and, you know, ways of coping and and ways of recovering that we should be looking into, or is it like a collective stress that we need to recover from? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and do we actually need to approach this differently? Um, yeah. It's intense to hear about what it would be like in the clinic right now. Oh yeah. Um, and just hearing that, I was feeling like, wow, that's intense to think of just not being able to dig out. And I imagine doing the best work anyone can with individuals and even groups. Yes. And yet, you know, here is the, the demand outweighing what the capacity is. So I heard that and I could imagine and feel the hopelessness of that or the overwhelm. Yes. And what I'm reminded by is the deep, the, the strategies and tool, inherited tools that people already have that they sometimes might forget about. And I'm sure everyone used them in spades during this pandemic. But whether for me, for example, it was getting back into sci-fi and <laughs> it, it just go, remembering that I could spend 10 minutes before bed. Mm-hmm. You know who it was? It was actually LeVar Burton. Do you know LeVar? I, do you know him? Yeah. He, um, there was a show when I grew up called Reading Rainbow and he was the host. He was actually on Star Trek: The Next Generation. Um, he had he was the blind character who had the band across his eyes. Anyway, he has the most amazing voice, and he loves telling stories. So I found this app called Lavar Reads, I think, and it's just him reading sci-fi with his beautiful voice. And so for me, that was a reminder of a practice that I could use to kind of refuel a little bit of my tank for 10 minutes before bed in the midst of the pandemic, Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I think if there is one thing that we can do is reminding people the practices they already have. Again, that could be, it's a lot of culture. I think it's a lot about um, interpersonal connection, connecting with family members, close friends. And then we we do our best to just keep giving people tools, as many as we can. That's my work around meditation. Tools after, as uh, many tools as we can give out. Um, and I think it's, it is, as you said, it's going to be a slow roll this next yeah. while. But trusting that people have everything they need to at least continue to survive. And then yes. it'll be slow. It could be a slow, slow roll. You know, one of the things that has been really interesting through this process is, and I think, you know, I, I've seen this through my own experience, both personally and professionally, and also in kind of public discourse, that this deprivation of connection that we've experienced, many of us, not everybody, um, through lockdowns and not going to the office and homeschooling, all this kind of stuff has really highlighted for our attention how important connection is with other people, right? And in this kind of individualistic and goal-oriented and sometimes, you know, materialistic way of living or consumer way of living, we think about ourselves and and the next little dopamine hit that's going to make us feel something, something nice for, for a short period of time. It's like, all, all that was kind of stripped away. And it's like, oh man, I just I haven't seen my colleagues in the flesh in like six months. I would just love to go for drinks at a Sanka set or something. And, and, and just like a craving for connection. Mm. Uh, I think it's our, that craving is our body's way of reminding us of this like fundamental thing, which is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, you want all this stuff and like our technology and our way of living makes it so easy to get all these things just like, you know, uh, uh, just like satisfying these kind of these needs on a moment to moment basis. But like, wait a second, there's something much more fundamental. We're social animals. We need ongoing connection, especially when we're under this kind of um, chronic stress. And so I'm just seeing like, everything is about connection now. Everything I read, all the psychology stuff. And it's been a really nice reminder for me personally, just the, the power of a hug um, the power of just like having a really good conversation with somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've really doubled down on that in in my practice, uh, both personal and professional. Mm. I've been reminded of the ways that people are going to experience um, this shift if it does continue to happen with COVID, where things seem to keep opening up in such different ways. I have a similar, I mean, I'm an introvert at heart and there was actually like a lot of relief for the first stretch of um, first couple of months of the pandemic. Yes. And um, I've heard that from others as well. And then I hear you about the power of co-regulation and it's a really important part of trauma work is just yes. actually attuning with someone else. And but I've been reminded the last couple of weeks that there there's some people who are going to experience this move back towards socialization with actually a lot of fear and yes. maybe distrust. I heard like one example that caught me off guard is my friend's kid who's uh, 10, 11, and they were going to remove the mask mandate where I was living. And I said, I said to the parents, I thought, I said, oh, she must be so relieved to finally get to take the mask off in school. And they said, well, actually she's really anxious because for the last couple of years, she's been holding the idea that if she got COVID that we could die. Oh my goodness. Which, you know, I mean, it's not that the parents were saying like, don't, you know, they don't take the mask off or we're going to die. It was just kind of what she was by osmosis hearing. And so she's been holding safety for her family around the mask. And so the idea of suddenly we're shifting back to this person to person contact is terrifying for her. So it was just a good reminder for me about the ways that this is going to look really different for people. And I appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah. And just the distribution, some people having huge house parties and other people like not going out for a month just because they feel safer and they've adapted to a quieter lifestyle. Definitely. And also a kind of creativity around how we're going to gather going forward, oh right? Gosh, because yeah. so much has been called into question. Um, I actually just look forward to the the new ways that we can connect, um, given that there's this, I think, a kind of a backlog of need for that. So, so you're saying we should go all in on the metaverse. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> I'm already there. I mean, you know, I've got my clinic there and yeah. Oh, wow. wow. David, we're, we're over an hour here and I want to be respectful of your time. Um, I wonder if, you know, if there's anything that you feel we didn't cover that we should, um, anything, any projects you want to just mention here or any final words? Yeah, I, I'm really interested in investing in educators and healthcare professionals right now. And if everyone, really, all of us. But I'm especially drawn right now to healthcare workers, uh, anyone who's been in the healthcare system, but especially frontline folks, um, and then educators seeing the massive complexity and political strife, at least in the U.S., that has happened around um everything that got politicized around masks. And here we have a group of people who are trying to teach young people and the amount yeah. of just the amount of stress and trauma that they've been exposed to and, and the expectation they're somehow going to be able to just pop back up and start teaching again after this whole, whole couple of years. So I just noticed that's where my energy is being drawn right now about I want to listen, like what do teachers and healthcare professionals need going forward? Um, and then I imagine for listeners here on the podcast, it's also how can we be best in service? Um, both how can we be skillful in our own lives? And then if we're holding others, what skills do we need? So I'm just in, I, mean, I think this is going to be a whole mm -hmm. piece. And I'm so proud of like the resilience I've seen in different communities and just curious where this is all going to go. So, you know, thanks for your good work. I think this is needed. These conversations are needed and happy to be back a couple of years later. Really awesome to have you. And in terms of education, um, just all the work around trauma sensitive mindfulness, just, you know, you were one of my first teachers around trauma therapy. So I'm incredibly grateful to oh, you cool. for that and invite you to keep doing all the good work. Um, so thanks for all of that. Thanks, Joe. All right, David, take care. Okay. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Mindspace podcast. I hope it was inspiring. If you feel the world could use a little more Mindspace, please consider supporting the podcast. The best way to do that is to leave a review on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you listen, or share your favorite episode on social media. Thanks and be well. Be well.